The Holy Gospel according to Luke chapter 20. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second and the third married her, and so all the way until all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and of the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to, who, to him, all of them are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, that first reading today, the one Kelly read, contains arguably the most well-known verse in the Bible's book of Job. You know a little bit about the book of Job? Yes? It's the Bible's longest, and I would say also truest, wrestling match with one of the most enduringly difficult questions believers often find themselves wrestling with, that being the question, if God is God, and if God is good, and if God is just, then why do bad things, things that aren't good, happen the way they do to innocent and good and faithful people? I call Job one of the truest biblical wrestling matches with that age-old question because at the end of the day, uh, the book doesn't give us the final answer to the question, but rather, essentially criticizes, takes down one by one the many and various attempts at answers that many and various believers, usually those who aren't suffering, often give to those who are suffering in order to, under the guise of offering comfort, explain to them why in our good God's world they are suffering. Oftentimes, in Job's world and ours, those many and various attempts at answers come across as little more than cliches, which don't feel comforting, but rather feel like people are attempting to defend God. As in, for example, God doesn't give you more than you are strong enough to handle. Well, then I wish I wasn't so strong. This is for your own good. God wants to teach you, to strengthen you. All things happen for a reason. God must have needed your child in heaven more than you needed him here. 
Maybe it was really for the best. Maybe God knew something terrible that was going to happen to her, and God took her to spare her that, or the classic conversation stopper. It's the will of God, which I want to tell you is a damnably tough pill to swallow. If yours is the healthy three-month-old who just died of SIDS. Maybe, maybe perhaps possibly, there is a bit of truth in some of those kinds of stock answers, but there's not enough truth in any of them to lob them up at the suffering as though they are finally the final answers. And in my opinion, the most helpful thing and the main thing the book of Job does is say that. As Job's friends, if you read it, take turns tossing their cliché explanations at his suffering, with Job taking, as the book goes on, it's 42 chapters long, Job taking increasingly indignant exception to every one of the things they say. In case you haven't read Job, I'll tell you that in the end, the final one who comes to speak to Job in his suffering is God. Who, it turns out, doesn't give Job a final answer to his questions either? but by and large tells him rather, and you can like this or not, tells him rather that you by and large have to be God to comprehend the answer to the question. And you can, you can like this or not, but what that means, in other words, is that any final answer to the question of why bad things happen to good people in God's world is finally an answer that remains hidden within the mystery of the Godness of God which isn't an answer I personally maybe like at all, except for the fact that in my experience to date, that kind of ultimately non-answer is by far better than any attempts I've heard people offer as answers. Another main point Job makes is that though God didn't come with a final answer to God Job's questions about suffering, God did nevertheless come. And what Job says in the end is that knowing that God loved him enough to come be with him in his suffering, he could be at peace with not being able fully to comprehend the ultimate and final answer as to why there's such a thing as suffering. Some of you have at times reached that same place, yes? That place where you know that what saw you through from one moment to the next, from one day to the next, what even gave you a measure of peace was not a final answer from God, but rather your sense of the loving presence of God. Which takes us back to the most famous verse in the book of Job, when in Job 19, and this is right in the middle of the book and right in the middle of his suffering and his questioning, he said to his unhelpful answer-giving friends, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. What Job is powerfully speaking with here is that oh-so-powerful something that is present when our present faith and hope. 
Hope not being the thoroughly trivial thing that people seem often to speak about when they say things like, ooh, I sure hope so, but hope rather being the thoroughly powerful thing scripture is talking about when it uses the word hope, that powerful something being faith with its eyes on the future. Birthing the powerful conviction that things may well in this life at times and for whatever reason be what they are, but they are not yet what they will be. For God is God and God is good and God is love and God will in God's time make right what is wrong when the future, that is the future God holds in God's hands, does come to be and comes to me. Job in his suffering, in his suffering, hopes not using the world's ooh, I sure hope so, wishful thinking kind of words, but rather hopes his hope with those words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. Job, in the Old Testament, hoped that hope all the way to the heavens above and to a God who did come and who in the end even finally restored his health and family and fortunes in this life which of course is well and good as far as it goes, is just that, well, and you know this, sometimes that's not how it goes. Sometimes in this life, the fortunes of the suffering aren't restored. Which is perhaps why Christians, New Testament people, people like, like George Frederick Handel and the Messiah when he was writing some of his songs, picked up Job's powerful words and hoped them all the way not just to the heavens above this life but hoped them all the way to Jesus and his promise of love all the way even unto heaven and eternal life. Which takes us to our gospel reading for today where Jesus is confronted by a religious group known as the Sadducees. Often they were paired with the Pharisees, but they had a distinct difference with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were known for their belief that heaven and eternal life were not something to believe in. The Sadducees believed that the only true books of the Bible, there were just five of them, and that was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, in which they said there is not a peep about heaven and eternal life. That is just something that naive, misguided, wishful thinking people thought up later, they said. So they came to Jesus, who had been teaching not only about many and various things for this life, but also heaven and eternal life, and they decided to take him on. And the devil, generally being in the details, they decided to ask him what they knew was just this devilishly clever question. They set up the question with the Old Testament law from the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses that said that if a man married and then died without giving his wife any children, then his closest relative had to marry, 
and that was the law. So he could give her children. With that law in mind, they then prefaced their clever question with this clever scenario. A man marries, a woman dies, no children. Her, his brother marries her, dies, no children. And it goes on and on for seven brothers, this whole family of brothers who all marry her and all die, leaving her childless and alone. The obvious observation at that point, which of course should be made, is my gosh, the poor woman. That wasn't of interest to them. Their interest was in making Jesus look foolish with their devilishly clever question, which they now launched. So, they said, here comes this heaven you like to talk about. Which one of the seven will she be married to in heaven, smart guy? Then they all high-fived themselves because they were, you know, they surely had stumped this jump. The Sadducees, I'm pretty sure, by the way, were all older guys. I don't know why I know this, but I just think, feel like I do. And Jesus, of course, was younger. He's in his early 30s, which is why, as I read between the lines, I summarize the reply he replies to them going something like this. Okay, boomers. Let me explain something to you. Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but that's not how it is in the resurrection from the dead, when the children of God are raised to become like angels, where surely there is love like you've never known before, but there's not marriage as such, like you have known before. He then did just this really quick little Bible study uh, with them from Moses, from one of their favorite books, the point of which being that if you actually read correctly, Moses in that burning bush story um, makes reference to eternal life. Without going into detail, I should tell you that many scholars think that the point Jesus actually was making here, um, Bible study-wise, uh, was a bit silly, uh, which, which I kind of buy into, because I kind of think maybe what he was really doing was telling these folks that their question had been silly in the first place. That said, you know what, when I um, sometimes think about heaven, oh my gosh, uh, All Saints Sunday last week, and buried Betty Sass this week, when I sometimes think about heaven, and I do, I sometimes think um, things that maybe, um, well, darn it, might be kind of silly too. Silly questions. Like, well, my mom and my dad, when I see them, um, how old will they be? Will I see them the way I saw them when I saw them last? I hope not. They were both suffering then. Will I see them the way they were when I was a young child and they were both vibrant and strong? Or will I see them as they themselves now, young children, with eyes turned to their own parents, my grandparents, who are now young and vibrant and strong again? Probably a little bit of a silly question, right? I could go on. I think a lot of silly questions. But the point is, it's not people, just people being devilishly duplicitous, but rather people being perfectly sincere who, when you start thinking about heaven, uh, you do discover the devil's kind of in the details. And here's the thing, the answer Jesus gives in this text, I think, is for both the duplicitous and the sincere. His answer being that duplicitously or sincerely, you can't imagine heaven and eternal life. You can't when all you have 
are the paradigms and parameters and constructs of Earth and this life. So, so for here and now we can only, if we will, if we are so graced, we can only trust what has been promised by the most trustworthy promise maker who ever walked this earth, but which beyond that can only be imagined. In fact, can't even be imagined, at least not by us, for it will be the next life, not this one. And until then, our imaginations of life can't but be unlimitedly limited by the paradigms and parameters and constructs of the life we live and know here and now. Thinking about that got me imagining that maybe us trying to imagine heaven and eternal life is kind of like, well, and I don't know, maybe this is silly, um, but I was imagining it to be like two children, twins, a brother and a sister, yet unborn, yet in the womb. And one of them, let's say the brother, is a Sadducee. For he, you see, doesn't believe in life after birth. His sister, on the other hand, does. She believes there's more, she says. She believes there's life to come, she says. Sometimes, in fact, she says she can even almost hear voices calling to her from what is to come. Little did she know that her parents went to the library and signed up for the program with other young parents of reading to the bump. She hears them. Sometimes she thinks they're singing to her, she hears. Sometimes they are reading to her. Sometimes she's, she thinks they're praying for her. Sometimes she thinks she hears them just talking to her. Her brother, the Sadducee, not believing in love, life after birth, loves her, but shakes his head in the pity of, at the naivete of her wishful thinking. He's a realist, after all, he says. Listen, he says, the fluid around us and the protective sac and muscles around us, they disappear at birth. There can't be such a thing as life without them. Plus, he says, our life lines, our umbilical cords, they are severed at birth, and they are where nourishment and oxygen come from. You cannot live without nourishment and oxygen. Plus, he says, do you know what people go through when life here comes to an end and they are born? It's terrible. You don't survive that. You die. Maybe you do die, she said, but then I believe you are resurrected to new life. How can you possibly know that, he says. The voices, she says. And the readings they sometimes read, she says. I, I won't tell you I understand them, but they're, they are holy. I know this, and in their holiness there is truth, and in their truth there is life. They agree to disagree. And then the most both the moment comes, birth comes, and they both see it coming. I love you, he tells her. I'll see you again soon, she tells him. And he closes his eyes, and comes the final passage. And he struggles, 
and he feels faint and he knows it is over until he sees what is it? He's never seen anything like it. He sees light. In fact, he bursts into the light and the light catches him and holds him. And then without even thinking or trying, he starts doing something that he later will understand is called breathing, followed by something that is called crying, both of which, both of which feel something like amazing. It's cold at first, of course, but he's, he's raised to a breast, which is warm and warming. And then he's wrapped in a warm blanket, and he closes his eyes and he sleeps for how long he does not know. But when he opens them again, he sees her, wrapped in her blanket, lying just feet from him, and he knows exactly who she is, except how in the world does he know? Because she looks almost nothing like she looked before, but it's her. He knows this for an absolute fact. It's her. He says, you, I love you. her eyes and she smiles. She says, told you I'd see you again soon. He opens his eyes wider and he sees movement and he sees shapes and he sees, he sees that the shapes have, have, have faces. Some of the features are blurry, but he knows this. The faces, the features, they're smiling. He, doesn't, he knows this. And one of the shapes picks him up and, and calls him by name. The shape's voice is, is deeper, lower, and then it says, I'm so glad you're here. I love you. And then the shape says to someone else, look, honey, he just smiled. And maybe he did. Maybe he did. For he was known, and he was loved, Known and loved, first of all, by the one he'd always known and loved. Known and loved, too, by this brand new love. So maybe it was a smile they saw on his face. As known and loved, he realized there is life after birth. And so it is. And so Jesus promises it will be.